Heavenly Father, we are thankful, Lord, that we've come such, such a distance in this book. It, for so many, Father, it's a book that's never touched, never studied. And now that we've gone through it, perhaps from the whole of it, looking back, Father, it's, uh, it's such, a, such an amazing work. Father, such an amazing uh, revelation of things to come and things past. Uh, Father, thank you so much for the, the privilege that we've had to study it. And, uh, Father, I pray that many more would have the opportunity to learn it, perhaps through uh, being able to listen to what's been recorded already, and that your word would go out. We thank you, Father, for the lessons you've taught us through Israel. And having brought that people into existence, having been faithful to them through so long, and despite all that they did, Father, it's such a testimony of, of your faithfulness and such a reminder to us of how patient you are with us. And we thank you for that lesson. Thank you, Father, that you did not call a people to yourself who were so perfect in their obedience that it would only leave us discouraged. Or a nation of people, Father, so uh, determined to obey you that it would only uh, make us look bad by comparison. And in that, Father, it would it, perhaps it would have skewed our understanding of grace and of mercy and given us a thought that we weren't worthy uh, of even attempting to follow you, Father. Um, thank you, Father, for the encouragement that it is that you held a people to yourself who were so stubborn at times. Because, Father, we're just like them in our own ways. And we thank you, Father, for your grace to us as well. And teach us now in your word how we can serve you better. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends. We ended last week. It was in the very first verses of chapter 44. You remember we stopped around verse 3 where we looked at David. And to give you the bigger picture here, of course, we're still looking at the temple. We're still looking at the kingdom age and what's going to happen for Israel in that age. God is revealing it through Ezekiel in pieces. And one of the pieces we got to last week was at the conclusion of his touring of the new temple, we found out that there was one place within that temple for David who would be resurrected like the rest of the saints from the Old Testament. And when David comes back, he will have his job back, at least a kind of version of it. Uh, the Bible says, uh, Ezekiel says, he will be called the prince of Israel in his role underneath King Christ. And he will have an office. He'll go to work every day. And in Ezekiel 44, we read this, verses 1 through 3 again. He says, uh, Then he, the angel, brought me back by the way of the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces the east, and it was shut. And the Lord said to me, This gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it. For the Lord God of Israel has entered by it, and therefore it shall be shut. As for the prince, he shall sit in it as prince to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by way of the porch of the gate and shall go out by the same way. The reason that gate was closed was that Christ dying on the cross is an act of atonement that no one can repeat, right? It's a once-for-all sacrifice. And then Christ enters into this temple serving as our high priest, as our intercessor, going to intercede for us. So his entry into the temple through the east gate becomes symbolic of his work of redemption on behalf of the saints. And just as his work of redemption is a one-way path no one else can take, no one else can repeat or equal, similarly his journey into the temple will be made one time and then it will be shut for anyone else so that it can never be repeated, so that the symbol is never suggested again, as if the worshipers are saving themselves walking in every day. That's not going to be happening. So when David has to go to work in this place, where does he have to go with us? He come in from the inside. He has to walk in from the inside. Well, now we're in the court looking at the gate from the inside. The door being shut, as you can see. Remember I said he's going to work, so of course he has his lunch pail. 
his Shlomo lunchbox, and he is walking in to do business for Israel. Now, there's simply no more we know at this point about what he's doing, the nature of his time in that place and his work. And really, the same is true for all of us, right? We don't really know at the level we'd like what we're going to be doing. Now, there are some details in Isaiah, which we covered a ways back, but they were very vague. And the bottom line is this, and I'll say this, I say this to people all the time, and we're going to, this actually is a lead into where we're going to go next. But if your concern about living for eternal things rather than living for temporal things, if your concern in that is, well, I know the things of this world, they're, they're pretty exciting, they're pretty enticing. I love the life I can create for myself here with my wealth and my entrepreneurship and industriousness and so on. But when I think about life in the kingdom, it kind of sounds boring sitting around all day, harps, clouds, angels, holy, holy, holy. And the thinking that comes with that is simply a result of not understanding what life there will be like. Let me say this to you, though. Even without the understanding that we might want, you can be assured that the God who made this world and knew how to make it enjoyable is the same God that's making the next one. And he's telling you that what you'll have in that world is better than what you'll have in this world, such that it's worth waiting to get your reward there rather than seeking it now. When we looked at this last week, the issue that got raised about this point was that if David is sitting there ruling, as we said, and we looked at some cross-references out of other places in the Bible where we heard that David would be ruling over Israel, the 12 tribes would be ruled by the 12 apostles uh, out of the New Testament in Matthew 19. And then we learned in 1 Corinthians, Paul said that the church will also rule in that time. We will reign with Christ, uh, John said in Revelation 20. Paul said we will judge the world and we will judge angels in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So what we learned last week is there is a role for the saints, both the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints, both for Jew and Gentile, to rule and reign with Christ in this government of that time. And this is where we start to feel a little bit more informed about what life there will be like. If there's a government, there's a bureaucracy. There's paperwork. And right now everyone's thinking, Steve, you're not making me look forward to this more. This is not helping. But it does show that there's sophistication, there's complexity, there's real life, if you want to use that term. And there are assigned roles. And so then that becomes the question, where do I fit in that government? How will I be assigned a role? Do I put out a resume? Do I apply before the kingdom opens up for jobs? How do we decide, how does God decide where we will serve him? And if if David can be over the, the nation of Israel, and then the 12 tribes can be ruled over by apostles who are under David, and David is under Christ, well, then clearly there's hierarchy. And if there's hierarchy, that means there's bosses. That means, well, I'd like to know how high in the ranking I might get. I mean, these are not irrelevant questions. They're material. They're material to the justice of God. Knowing all this, we want to get to some understanding of how God assigns people to those roles. It's not directly out of the book of Ezekiel, obviously, but one of those opportunities that's coming out of the text, I think, to discuss an area of of Scripture that's not well understood in my experience. Not enough Christians understand this. Some of you have studied in this area before, and so this may be review, but even in that, I think there's some things tonight you might not have studied with me before. So, what kind of government does God set up when he sets up a government of his own design? It's always a monarchy. Always. Democracy actually is associated with the church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation, chapter 3. It's considered a corrupt style of government. The Bible clashes with our Western libertarian mindset. There's a sense, especially in the southern United States, 
where patriotism and Christianity are sort of two sides of the same coin. And should anybody voice any lack of patriotism over the American way, it's unchristian. Well, you know what Christian government looks like? It's a monarchy. It's one guy running everything, no voting. I'm not saying we should go to a monarchy. What I'm saying, though, is there's nothing inherently good, godly, or otherwise about democracy. It's simply another form of corrupt government, along with all the others. Monarchy, when it's done according to God's will, is the right way. Actually, if I could assure you that your king was perfect in his judgments, you would vote for a monarchy every day. That's the whole point. We fear totalitarian governments because we fear dictators. But when the totalitarian government is run by Christ, you don't fear it at all. It's a good thing. So government of of God is fundamentally monarchy. In the government of the kingdom, that's how it will be. The king will be Christ, of course. But under him, there are levels of authority ruling with him. Where do we go in the Bible to find out how he will assign us into those roles? There are two parables, principally, and there are lots of places this is addressed in the scriptures, by the way, not just in parable, but there are two parables that do, I think, the best job if you had to pick a place for summarizing not only what we see coming as reward, but how it's assigned. And we're going to look at two of those tonight. It's it's a bit of an off-road from the normal Ezekiel study. I think it's worth the time, and the alternative to that is to slog through a bunch of sacrificial rules for the new kingdom. And I think for us, we'll do that in time, but this will be a nice addition. Okay? We start in the first of those, which is in Matthew. So what I have you do, if you have your Bibles in front of you, because I'm not going to put the verses on the screen, but if you have the Bible in front of you, as I hope you do, go to Matthew 25. The first of these, and you've heard of these two parables, I'm sure. Uh, the first of these is called the parable of the talents. Uh, by the way, I put a slide up there from what we just talked about, the government. We looked at this last week, but that slide just shows you uh, a summation of what the Bible tells us about the government of the kingdom. And that slide's available online as well. You can get it later if you'd like. Meanwhile, these are the two parables, Matthew 25 and in Luke 19. The parable of Matthew is the parable of the talents. The parable of Luke is the parable of the minas. How many of you have at least remember at some point reading one, both of those at some point or having heard them, right? Everyone's heard talents and minas. How many of you think it's basically the same story said twice? Now, you're not going to raise your hand because you know I'm going to tell you it's wrong. All right? So let's just talk about all those other people out there that think that those two parables are basically the same parable told twice. There's quite a few people who would assume that because they seem to be the same, but you're going to see tonight that they're actually talking about different things. They're basically teaching the two-sided nature of reward in the kingdom. So here's what we're learning. We're learning what God is going to give you when you enter the kingdom, which for, for all of us could be just a few years away. Right? We're talking about your eternal state of socioeconomic status. All right, let's go to Matthew twenty-five, fourteen. He says, For it is just like a man about to go on a journey, who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. The master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. 
His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid, and I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scatter no seed? Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has... More shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right, let's start with this parable. You have a master, and he gives his slaves talents to steward during his absence. Now, a talent in Jesus' day was a measure of weight, and it was approximately 130 pounds. Okay, it's about 130 pound weight. It was used in measure, measurements for weighing out goods, a talent of weight. So if you had a talent, let's say, of silver, which is what's probably in view here, that would be equal in that day to nine years' salary. So I want you to take what you make today in our modern economy and multiply it by nine. How much money does that represent to you? Okay, so that's how much money is one talent. All right? That's what this guy was handing out. So the first thing we understand is that they were getting a substantial amount of wealth as a thing to manage. Okay? In fact, a single talent representing a considerable amount of personal resources, our word for talent, I have a talent, it actually comes from this word, this idea that I have something of value. Okay? So you have three slaves. Now I want you to notice some of the numbers, the patterns, and the like. You have three slaves in this particular parable. So you have three slaves, and in the case of the slaves here, they received differing amounts of wealth. What was the assignment based on? What did it say? What was the assignment based on? Why did they get different amounts? It says ability. So the master has knowledge of these guys, ladies, however you want to look at the parable, and has said, you're not able to handle that much, or you're able to handle more. But he has assigned it based on ability. And so evidently the master recognized the limitations of each servant. Regardless of the degree of responsibility, however, each slave was called to do the same thing in effect. That is, to devote their time, their full attention, to managing that talent or talents, whatever they were given. Right? So even the slave who received only one talent, all right, you might have looked at that person as having a very small job, but remember what we just said, what's a talent worth? If I gave you what is almost a decade worth of salary, I mean, let's just use a round number. Let's say a typical professional today might make $100,000 a year. With you know, That'd be a nice salary, wouldn't it? That'd be a good income. A million dollars dropped in the lap. That's not a small thing, right? So that's still a major thing in that day, just as it would be today. So all of them have to be faithful. All of them have this responsibility to care for what they've been given. All right? So they each have to manage wealth Let's put it in those terms. At the end of the parable, the master returns, as you know, and he evaluates each slave's service to know if they've been faithful in the discharge of their duty. First slave doubled his talents. Five became five. The second slave, what did he do? How would you characterize his work compared to the first? He also doubled. He also doubled, right? Both slaves 
receive the same exact commendation from the master. In fact, it is a word-for-word identical statement in both cases. They both get exactly the same commendation. So even though the master assigned a different degree of responsibility to each slave based on ability, he did so with that understanding, and so when they performed according to their ability, he was equally pleased. He didn't expect the one with two to turn it into ten or five or whatever. He expected them to do what they would do with what he gave them, right? So his commendation is identical. Then you have the third slave. He receives a rebuke because he failed to provide faithful service. We're going to come back to him in a minute. So let's look at what we learned so far based on these details. So you have unequal start, but you have proportional result. Unequal start. Some had five, some had two, whatever, but equal proportional result. And then lastly, we're going to look at what was the reward. The reward was what? What did they receive? They received a greater assignment of what they had had in the beginning. A greater assignment of reward in the same form that they had it originally, in more wealth. All right, so what we're seeing here, let's, let's put some interpretation to this. Based on the details, what you see Jesus describing is a reward system through parable, but it's for the believer. And we know that from just the sheer fact that he's talking about masters and slaves, which is the common uh, metaphor, the common symbol that Christ uses in parables when he's speaking about himself as a master in the church, the saints as slaves of his. So we have our master inviting every believer, his slaves, to serve him. And you notice this servants happens when? During an absence. He goes away for a long time. All right. While he's away, his servants serve him in his absence. And a talent then in the parable would symbolize our duty to serve him faithfully in some way, in some challenging way, some important way, serving him in our abilities. Here's where the word talent actually becomes um, an appropriate word to describe the reality of the parable because it's in our talents, in our time, and our treasure. You could actually sum it up in time, talent, and treasure. All of what we have to offer Christ. Now, when you look at the way the parable works, it makes sense when you think of that comparison because some believers assume greater burdens in service to Christ than others do, don't they? Not all of us have the same path in serving Christ. Some believers bear greater burdens. Wouldn't you agree? Some believers make greater sacrifices than others. Some are called to work in ways that others look at them and say, I could never do that. I could never be a missionary living in dirt in that part of the world. Or I could never have had to sacrifice so much in that way that that person did. Others of us live relatively simple, quiet, maybe some would even say easy lives serving Christ. Not because we have avoided necessarily going and doing hard work, but because the station of life that God gave us and the responsibilities that came with it were relatively easy to accomplish. But then God has assigned us these stations based on ability. Based on the gifting he gave us, to whom much is given, much is required. Based on our personal character, based on when we were saved. Some of us get saved the day before we die. How much service should we give Christ under those circumstances, like the thief on the cross? Some of us were raised in a very strong Christian home and started life from the very earliest age following Christ. You have a whole lifetime to serve Christ. That's five talents compared to someone else's one. Some people are Billy Graham. You think if you give God gives somebody what he gave Billy Graham, that he has got a lot of burden on his shoulders that comes with it, obviously, and so on. So the point is, God has assigned us abilities and stations in life that differ. Some of us will have a greater impact in that sense than others, according to what God has assigned to us. But here's the point. All believers are expected 
to demonstrate equal faithfulness so that they may receive equal reward. The rewards don't vary necessarily with our starting point. They're proportional. They're proportional. So a faithful servant's reward is what in literal terms? Well, the Bible says what we're actually seeking, if you will, in literal terms, is a share of Christ's inheritance. A share of his inheritance. The Bible says that Christ inherits the earth. That is his inheritance. You know, when you die, your will gives your inheritance to someone. Well, in Christ's case, it was his covenant in his own blood. He died and then he was resurrected to receive his own inheritance. It's like if your rich uncle dies and you're in the will and you're excited, but when he comes back to life, you're like, oh, now I have kind of mixed emotions about this. Well, in Christ's case, he died and his own testament, his own covenant was formed in his death and then in his resurrection he gained his own reward. He gained back to himself the inheritance of his own death. Does that make sense? But the Bible goes on to say he will share his inheritance with the believer. In Colossians 1.12, Paul says, Give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He qualified us to make that to have that shared inheritance. Colossians later also says 3.23, and I like this uh, quote particularly, Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as in with your talents, he means, as for the Lord, rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And Paul says in Ephesians 1.11, We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge. Now here's something you've heard before. The Holy Spirit is given to us as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. So in other words, God has put in us a deposit on that inheritance, and then he redeems us, as it were. He redeems that to his own possession, he says. So our assurance that we will have an inheritance is the fact that the Spirit of God is now in us, who is a down payment, if you will, on that inheritance. All right, so what we're learning is that Christ's inheritance is the master's possessions in this parable. And notice how each slave was permitted to keep the additional talents he earned during his master's absence. So, in a sense, we can say that the slaves, by being faithful to what they were given to manage, were storing up wealth for themselves by faithful service to their master. And Scripture commands us to do that very thing. You know this from Matthew 6, probably, where he says, don't store up treasure on earth, right? This is the concept of Scripture when it comes to eternal reward. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up treasure in heaven. And people say, well, how do I store it up for myself in, in heaven? Well, one way, one side of this reward system in parable form, as we just studied, is that your faithful service to Christ in the work you do to serve Him in ministry, whatever walk of ministry He gives you, is your internship in preparation for the kingdom. And what he watches is how you use what he gave you. Not just the financial side of life, but in all respects. He gave you a spiritual gift. How are you using it? He gave you 24 hours a day. How are you using it? He gave you all the resources of your life, not such that you would give them all away and become a pauper. That doesn't prove anything. 
What he wants you to do, though, is organize, orient your life with all of that material in a way that you maximize the return for Christ. Remember, what the master was looking for was, I gave you five, I want to come back and see something made of what I gave you. The one he didn't like was the guy who says, I, I did nothing with it, and he says, well, you should at least put it in the bank. That gives you the attitude that Christ wants a return on what he gave. So you organize, you orient your life around return for the sake of Christ. And he'll direct you in that. You don't have to have the plan, but you have to have the willingness. So here's what we learned. The parable in Matthew is teaching us that Christ assigns us varying levels of opportunity to serve him based on what he believes is best for us. Our assignment, however, does not limit our potential for inheritance. A pastor who serves faithfully in some small church or a Christian mother who faithfully raises up children in the Lord may be rewarded equally with the Apostle Paul or Martin Luther. That is, if they are equally faithful in their work. All right? If you go to another parable, we won't do it tonight, but if you go to another parable for homework, I guess, Matthew 20, there's a parable there about the landowner who sends men out into the, lab- into the field to labor, and he, he hires one guy in the morning and another guy in the afternoon and another guy late in the day. Remember that one? And at the end of the day, how much does each of them get? The same. That's another parable expressing the same concept. All three did what they were asked. The opportunity was different for each one in the sense that one could do more work than the other could do by virtue of time. But that's nothing on them. That, they can't control that. So they just had to be faithful to what was assigned to them. And in that faithfulness, there was equal reward. Now let's go back to that last guy for just a moment, the third servant. He gave no return at all, and so he had no reward. And in the parable, Jesus said the slave was afraid of the master and that he went away, notice, went away after the master departed. What these details are indicating is this slave did not love the master. He did not wish to serve the master. He didn't even wish to stay in the master's house. He went away. He left the house of the master. When he came back, that's why he's called wicked and lazy and sent into outer darkness. What we learn in that, in other words, is the slave's faithfulness to serve was an indication that he was not truly a servant. The master put him out of the home because in literal terms, he was demonstrating he was not employed. He was not actually under the master's authority. And so what Jesus is alluding to here is this was not someone who was his in the first place. Because the Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so the point in that detail in the parable is to indicate that you cannot earn your way into the master's relationship, that you either are a slave of the master inherently or you're not. And if you're not in his house, if you're not serving him in that role, then there is no reward potential at all. You have to be a disciple first. So in summary, it says faithfulness to service will determine our inheritance in the kingdom. And it's not based on opportunity, it's based on faithfulness. Let me sum that up with what he says in Luke 16.10. He says, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. What do you think the very little thing is? What's our very little thing that we have to be faithful in? Our whole life on earth. Your whole life on earth is a very little thing in the scheme of eternity. You get a few decades, friends. It's not that long. It seems long when we're on this side of it. It will not seem long when you're on the other side of it. And as some of us get older, it doesn't seem long even now. And all I'm saying is, when you put it into that perspective of eternity, you're going to look back and you're going to say, I had just a few decades I think I could have probably done a little better with that. 
than I did. You know, we're not going to necessarily feel sadness about it, not, not saying that. But what I'm saying is, it's a very little thing in the big scheme of things. It asks very little of us. You can probably put off instant gratification for 80 years if you knew what it was going to get you in the eternal. You could probably say no to a lot of things if you knew what it was putting at risk in the eternal, right? So he says, if you're faithful in a very little thing, he knows that means you will be faithful in much. And then he adds, and he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. And therefore, he says, if you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, that's a reference to the wealth of this world, right? If you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust true riches to you? And if you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, this, this wealth down here is not ours. It belongs to the world. We leave it behind when we go. It's not our wealth, right? So if you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? All right? So the point is, a measuring stick for God in, in terms of our faithfulness is how we take advantage of what he assigns to us in, in all respects of, of our resources, whatever that looks like, time, talent, and treasure. How faithful are we to use it for him versus for ourselves? Now again, I'm not saying this is a recipe to, to go out and sell everything you own and give it away to the poor and suddenly that makes you more holy. That's not what you do unless God asks you to do it. The point is orienting your whole life around how it can maximize his glory. All right, so... In the kingdom, this is where it gets kind of more interesting to me. In the kingdom, we're going to eat, we're going to sleep, we're going to have a place to live, we're going to have a farm. There's a reference in Isaiah to farming, or you could call it a ranch if you're from Texas. Um, it's going to be the place you have for a thousand years, right, in the kingdom. What you're going to have there is based on your faithfulness to him now, period. So if you're jealous of the person with the big house and the big car, and that causes you to live in ways here so as to obtain those things, what you're actually doing is putting at risk better things in the kingdom, potentially, if that decision has put you crossways with what God has called you to do in this life. That's a very sobering kind of thing, because to some extent we've all done that. I'm not saying anybody's immune from it, but I'm also saying that when you understand this, you're on notice now (laughs) to think differently about your life, for at least the time you have left, right? To think about, wait a minute, why am I making these decisions when I know I'm putting something at risk and I'm going to wish I hadn't put it at risk when I get there? I want to be faithful now so that I can be judged faithful for the future. Okay? Now, this is all one side of the reward system. All right? There's a second side. And the second side is explained in another parable in Luke 19. The parable of the minus. All right? This one is not going to take as much time because we've got the pattern down. But our goal in this case now is to understand what's the differences and how do those differences teach us something new in addition to what we've already learned? I'll read it all the way through. Luke nineteen eleven. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. And so he said, A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, Do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves, to whom he had given the money, be called to him, so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared and said, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave. Because you've been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be in authority over ten cities. The second came and said, Your mina master has made five minas. And he said to him also, You are to be over five cities. Another came and said, Master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are an exacting man. You take up what you do not lay down and reap what you do not sow. He said to him, Well, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. 
Did you not know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I do not lay down and reaping what I do not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. Then he said to the bystanders, Take away the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Well, Master, he already has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Now here again, this sounds very similar. And so for some, if they don't read it carefully, they feel like, oh, Jesus just told the same story twice. Maybe with some details that are a little different, but it's the same basic idea. But if you look at the details and consider them carefully, you realize these things cannot be the same. First, again, a master departs. He goes to receive a kingdom. He leaves. He comes back after receiving the kingdom. That's a clear reference in timing terms to this judgment being after the kingdom has come to be, right? And he leaves ten slaves behind. And in this case, he commands them to do business. The Greek word for do business, it means to keep yourself occupied, to keep busy, all right? So in other words, it it, it suggests everyday life. It, It suggests not some special project, not some special task or huge major undertaking. Just go about daily life. That's the suggestion. That's one thing. Second thing you should notice is the unit of weight in this parable has changed. Obviously, it's no longer a talent. Now it's a mina. Now a mina is equal to one-sixtieth of a talent. So a mina is still reasonably valuable, but it's considerably less valuable than a talent. And so that's kind of consistent with what we just heard, right? You're telling them, just do business, everyday life, and you're giving them a modest amount of money. You're not asking them to go off and invest some huge, wealthy amount of money that they have to worry about. Okay? Thirdly, what other difference you find? Every slave here received the same number of minas. So let's start with the number of slaves. How many slaves in this parable? Ten. And how many minas did each slave receive? One, right? Everybody gets... Oh, I'm sorry. Not one, sorry. Everybody gets what? Ten. Right? Everybody gets ten. So... In this case, every slave received the same number of minas, so no slave was given an advantage in the assignment, and all had an equal task of doing business. So there's no distinction being made here based on ability. Fourthly, when the master returns, he assigns rewards how? What kind of rewards does everybody get? You have to go back and look. It's based on results. So... Equal start, but disproportionate result. It's an exact opposite of the earlier parable. Earlier, everyone started differently, but they were rewarded the same in a proportional sense. Here, everyone starts the same, but you don't get back the same. It depends on the results. So the slave who was more effective in business received more than the one who was not. And then lastly, and most significantly, what was the form of the reward? Yeah. They were not given more minas, they were given authority to rule over cities, proportional with the degree to which they were successful in their work. These are the differences that teach us we're looking at another system, not another way to get material reward, but another aspect of reward that will come alongside the material one. Matthew's parable taught us how we receive the inheritance, that is the wealth that will make up our, um, I'm trying to think of the right term, our capital our financial position. What Luke is teaching us is how the Lord will assign us responsibility for ruling. 
This is how he will assign our role in the government. And that responsibility will not be assigned equally. Because not everyone can be king. Not everyone can be prince. Not everyone can be colonel. Whatever terms that we might have in the kingdom. So, therefore, what will be the criteria for assigning us various levels of responsibility in the kingdom? Well, the first clue is the repetition of the number 10 in this parable. For example, the master initially calls 10 slaves, but only three are judged in the parable, but we're told there's 10. Why? That's a very interesting detail. It must be meaningful that he needed to tell us there were 10, because if he's only going to address three of them in the end anyway, why didn't he just say there were three? Because the number 10 needed to be accentuated. And again, 10 minas. And 10 cities for having done a good job with 10 minas. That number 10 is, is notable and it's prominent. And what does the number 10 in Scripture mean when it's meant to indicate something, when it's got a symbolic meaning associated with it? What's the number 10 mean? Anybody know? Not government. That's 12. Testimony or witness. Testimony or witness. And so the prominence of that number in the parable suggests that it's focused on a believer's testimony, not on their service. Their testimony. And further reinforcing that conclusion, we know that the slaves were told to just do business. That is, just go about your everyday life. Just do what is normal. Don't go off off and do something special. Just be yourself In other words, a good testimony is not a short-term work or a special project. It's the summation of your life. A good testimony is how you lived as a Christian generally. And believers are called by Scripture to make their everyday life a testimony. Paul says in Romans 12.1, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So, said simply, your witness is a life lived according to the will of God. Or the the opposite of that. And that is your spiritual service of worship. It's a daily effort. It's a way of, quote, doing business while the master is gone. More specifically, our witness takes the form of works, according to Matthew 5.16. Jesus says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So, to put a more theological term to it, we're talking here about your sanctification. The sanctification of your life, the outward living of your testimony through good works before mankind, before people, is your light shining. And it's the way of glorifying the Father. Those who make a life of pursuit, pursuing sanctification are those who are at work producing a good testimony. And those who live in the flesh are those who grieve the Holy Spirit and fail to produce a good testimony. And to some degree, we all live on both sides of that in varying degrees, right? It's not that your life in Christ is a straight line, but it should be moving more or less in, in, a, in a certain direction over time, even if it is not a perfectly straight journey. Back to the parable. Just as every slave began with an equal number of minas, ten, every believer begins his or her walk with an equal opportunity to pursue sanctification. We all have the opportunity to produce a good testimony. That is to say, no one in the body of Christ is handicapped by the Lord in any sense, whether by their station in life, the age in which they live, the part of the world in which they happen to inhabit, their access to materials, their access to good teaching, 
their access to the Lord in some other form. None of those things in and of themselves get in the way of our pursuit of sanctification should it be the Lord's will. No one will ever show up in heaven and say, I could have been more holy if you had put me in the U.S. instead of putting me in Africa. That is not going to be a legitimate excuse, right? Those who are listening to the Lord and the Spirit in them will find the sanctifying opportunities that God wants them to find if they're pursuing it, if they have an interest in it, and He will bring them the resources they need in the time and the day they need it. So there's no handicap here. Our life circumstances, our spiritual gifts, our mission may vary, yes, but we all have the same Spirit, we all have the same Word, we all have the same Lord and the same call to godliness. So the test is this. Are we willing to do business? Are we willing to answer the call of Christ to, com- to obey Him and to sanctify Him or to sanctify our lives? The believer who expresses that or, or pursues that in self-discipline, the one who has the character, the desire, they're the ones demonstrating trustworthiness in this context. And Christ says that kind of trustworthiness to the mission of sanctification, to the mission of godliness, will result in greater responsibility to rule in the kingdom. And that makes absolutely perfect sense, wouldn't it? Who do you hire when you want to select someone to do an important job? Isn't it the person whose track record demonstrates they are somebody you can trust to do the work they've been given to do? And so in the context of authority and ruling, what Christ is looking for is not who had the biggest splash, whoever made the biggest impact in some magic work of, 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 of a certain situation. You know, they started a church. Oh, that's a great thing, Steve. Yeah, but the rest of your life you were just following after your flesh. You know, if that's the, the testimony of your life, those moments of punctuated effort to serve Christ, well, I showed up at church for three weeks in a row. Well, good for you. You know, if that's, if that's what you're hanging your hat on, Christ won't be fooled. At the end, he's going to say, who among those I gave minas to and told to do business, who came back with the most business done? Those are the ones I want to give the most cities to because they're the ones who've demonstrated the most faithfulness in serving me through their own improvement, through their own growth, that is, in in yielding to the Spirit and walking with Him. All right? Jesus said this in Luke 12, 48, For everyone who has been given much, much will be required, and to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. That's what we're talking about here. So, what of the slave who produced no results in this one? The one who had no minas. Well, you notice in this case, the master denies him reward, but unlike in Matthew, this slave is not consigned to outer darkness. Now, why that difference? Why that difference? Well, because in the case of spiritual maturity, every believer is assured the kingdom regardless of the degree of your sanctification. Knowing that this is a parable that's teaching about pursuing sanctification, had there been a condition in here where somebody gets sent to hell, it would suggest that our salvation is dependent on our sanctification, which would be bad theology. So Christ, obviously, wisely, took that out of this parable so as not to confuse us. No matter how little you pursue sanctification, faith alone gets you into the kingdom. But it doesn't get you any authority. But in the case of those who do not serve Christ at all, that is to say, those who have no gift, no talent, no spiritual gift, that's showing somebody who does not even know the Lord. Because unless you have faith, you won't have those things. Does that make sense? It's actually showing that there are people out there for whom service, good works, is not enough. Because they didn't know the Lord. They weren't truly his slave. Okay, Let me show you a verse in the Bible that sums all of this up really neatly, and it's one that's often misunderstood. But when you have the context we just studied, it comes into sharp focus. 2 Timothy 2.11. Paul says, 
It's a trustworthy statement. If we die with Him, we'll also live with Him. We're stopping there for a second. What does that say? What does it mean to die with Christ? When someone says they have died with Christ, that means they've been saved. In other words, this is Paul says this. If you notice in the text, it's written, formatted on your page in a poetic structure. That's because he's reading something here that was a must have either been a song that was sung in the first century church, or had become poetry at the time. He's he's quoting it effectively, something that was being repeated probably in their day, and and maybe even sung. And in that way, it's a very concise, pithy kind of statement. And so in this song that they were singing, they were saying, if we die with him, we will live with him. To die with Christ means to put your faith in his death for you. And if you have put your faith in the death of Christ, then you, like him, you will be resurrected. You will live with him. It's essentially a statement of salvation. Those who have died with Christ will live with Christ. Those who have faith in Christ will be resurrected like he was. All right, so that part, verse 11, starts with salvation. Verse 12 says, If we endure with him, we will also reign with him. All right, now, what does enduring and reigning refer to? Well, given what we just studied, to endure would mean to serve him. And in that enduring of serving and sanctifying, your reward will be reigning with him. See, statement one was salvation. Statement two is what? Sanctification. Sanctification, in the sense of a pursuing of, an enduring of this life for the pursuit of sanctification. It is an endurance race, by the way. It's very easy not to sanctify. It's an endurance effort to sanctify. And the reward is reigning. Okay, let's go another step. Paul goes a step forward. This is a great theology, all in a three-verse section. If you deny him, he will deny you. Now, in the context of that verse, what does denial refer to? What are you denying him? In that context, what, we, what are you denying him in that context? It's a direct parallel to the, to the verse above, to the phrase above. You're denying what? Your endurance. If you deny him your endurance... If you give him your endurance, you reign. If you deny him your endurance, he denies you your reward. He denies you your reigning. He denies you those ten cities that he gave to the other guy because he took your one city away and gave it to him. If you reign with him, it's because you endure. If you don't get anything, it's because you denied him your endurance. And that's what you're doing. Effectively, from Christ's point of view, a Christian who's called to do this and doesn't do it is saying to Christ, I'm not giving you my endurance. I'm going to spend my time, talent, and treasure on myself. That's denying Christ. All right, what's the concern you have at this point? Well, could I deny him so much that he would turn around and deny me in the end? That is to say, I might lose my salvation, which is how this is often mistaught. Well, Christ thought we might have that mistake in our head, so he makes sure that there's one more phrase in there, one more line in this little song to make sure we don't get that theology wrong. Even if we're so denying of our sanctification that we are basically faithless to him, nevertheless, he will remain faithful to us. Because he can't deny himself. He put a deposit of himself in us, and that deposit of himself in us, he can't deny himself, it's in us. So this is a summation of of justification, sanctification, and the eternal security of the believer, all in a three-verse section. Okay, And rewards are built into that, internal rewards are built into that. All right, so what do we just learn? And this is the summation of all of this. And you're going to like this, I think. The summation makes it all come together. Faithful service 
is what the talents are teaching. Faithful service. Serving him with your time, talent, and treasure. Right? Good testimony is what the miners parable taught. Pursuing sanctification. Let me make it a little easier. Faithful service receives an equal inheritance because we all serve in different ways to different degrees. It's not about what you did, right? It's about your faithfulness in the work. Good testimony leads to greater authority because it's a test of who can be trusted with authority. Faithful service is what you do for Christ. Faithful testimony is who you become in Christ. And you've seen people in the church, I'm sure, who do a lot and they're not very sanctified. And other people who are extremely sanctified, and yet when you compare them to other busy people in the church, they don't necessarily seem to be doing as much for the body. But you know what you don't see is they're praying for people all the time. Or they're just not gossiping. Or they're working on other areas of their life to make sure that they are pleasing to Christ in the dark corners of their life, rather than worrying about whether they're always you know, out front doing the work of the church. I mean, there's a place for both. My point is, they don't necessarily, one is not in contest with the other, but the point is, you can do one or you can do the other. They don't necessarily come together. Now, certainly the best case scenario is somebody who has both going for them. And hopefully to some degree, we all have some in both categories. Here's the final way I put it for people. Faithful service is outward sanctification. The other is inward sanctification. That's not a perfect use of the term sanctification, but it's the way I like to think of it. That is, how I'm outwardly serving the body is a sanctifying part of my life, right? And how I'm worrying about who I am in Christ is another aspect of my sanctification. And I I get rewards for both with Christ. I get a reward in the outward working of my life, how I sacrifice my desires in this world for Him. I'll see more reward there. So there's your opportunity to, to delay gratification. Rather than work for the wealth of this world, I'll work for the wealth of the next. There's a trade-off there. I'm going to make that trade-off because what's coming there is better than what I can get for myself here. That's outward sanctification. The inward sanctification, though, is one of proving yourself in your character to be worthy of great reward in terms of authority. And that's about disciplining the flesh, sanctifying yourself through the washing of the water of the Word so that I don't let my nature control me. I want Christ to control my nature. And in that yielding to him, he sees a servant that he can put in great responsibility for the kingdom. All of these things, by the way, teach us that no matter what sinlessness must bring, it does not bring equal maturity. Sinlessness, which is our condition in the kingdom, does not in and of itself make us all equally mature, equally trustworthy. Somehow it's possible for us to be sinless, and yet not be equal in our ability to serve or be trusted to serve Christ. Not trusted in the sense that we might lie or do the wrong thing, but more trusted in the sense that we know how to handle problems well. Trusted in the sense that we know how to do the work right. I mean, you can have two people who are equally trustworthy, and one of them is incompetent. True? So that's what we're talking about here. There is something you're learning and gaining in your pursuit of Christ now that transfers into the kingdom that you don't get to just sort of make up on your own when you get there. You can't just kind of study for the test on the last night on the day of the kingdom. So there is going to be, and this is our passion as a church, to teach the Bible, friends. This is in a nutshell. Because there are millions of Christians who are going to go into the kingdom having been poorly served by churches who didn't understand this is the commission of the church to prepare people for their eternal life. And as a result, they babysat people in churches on Sundays for generations. Teaching them pablum or nothing. Entertaining them. 
and making that appear as though that's the service of Christ. Now, I'm not saying people can't come out of that system and still be well prepared. God can do that for them through his own means, obviously. But what I am saying is he's got the church on earth for that purpose. And the church should be living up to it. We're trying. We're not necessarily any better than the next. But my point is this is what drives the desire for our church to teach the Bible because we know that you know, when I have to give an account for those who are entrusted to me, I don't want to have to stand before Christ and say, yeah, I probably should have done more Bible teaching to them. And now they're all wishing I did that. So it may seem totally off the point from Ezekiel for you, and I, I apologize if you felt that, but it comes out of the conversation on government, and I hope it was worth the time tonight because, frankly, you might not get anything out of Ezekiel more important than that anyway. When we come back, then we'll do the rest of 44, 45. That's going to guarantee us two weeks to finish, all right? So I can say that now with some, some certainty, which is fine. So we'll do next week, 44, probably into 45, and then 46, uh, 7, and 8 to finish in the last week, okay? So we'll come back and we'll do that. This will be enough for tonight. We'll just do some conversation around rewards. Go home and share that with somebody, please. There are people in the body who have no idea that they're even under judgment by God, much less the system in which they're being judged, right? And when you think now, last thing I'll say is, a, as a get, off, get on my soapbox for just a second, as you think about your life day to day and you're coming to moments when you make decisions about your life and sometimes it's a moment of, do I sin or not? Or sometimes it's a moment of simply, how do I spend my time or not? You need to be thinking about the fact that if there's a, a call on your life that you know God wants you to do X and you're contemplating doing Y instead, what you're doing is you're telling God that thing in the kingdom he had for you, I don't want that after all. And you're taking something here in its place. In some sense, I don't know if it's literally that moment, but it's in some sense, that's the trade-off. You need to be asking yourself in that moment, and what I'm going after right now worth it? Now, I don't know what's behind door number two, but do you think what he has prepared for you is going to pale in comparison to what you can give yourself? That's the trade-off. And so that's the incentive. That's why this is in the Bible, by the way, I think, why it's revealed to us, is so that it would incentivize the believer to have eyes for eternity so that when we're in those moments, there's that little extra bit of incentive for you to work with your flesh and say, nope, I know what you want, but I know what I want. And I'm not going to give it to myself yet. I'm going to wait and take it in the right moment, which is to say I'm going to obey now so that God will faithfully reward me later. Right? Teach your kids that too. Grandkids. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this reminder that we serve a good, faithful, and just God who loves to give good gifts to his children. And we thank you, Father, that you will do it in a just way to your own glory. And we pray, Father, that in the time we have served, that you have recognized uh, those things that we have done in the will of the Spirit and in the desire to, to honor you, and, and that it will be there waiting for us in the day to come, and that we thank you, Father, as well, that you would show us these things now while we are still here and able to take advantage of them so that in whatever days we have left, we would serve you even better. Help us to live out what we've learned. Help us to show others as we have opportunity. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.